This is Hacker Public Radio episode 3213 for Wednesday the 25th of November 2020. Today's show is entitled, Electrical Safety. It is the 20th show of Paul Quirk, and is about 31 minutes long, and carries a clean flag. The summary is, I discuss why and how I stay safe when working with electricity, with some ear candy at the end. This episode of HPR is brought to you by archive.org. Support universal access to all knowledge by heading over to archive.org forward slash donate. Good day, good listener of Hacker Public Radio, and welcome back to the Paul Quirk Show. In this episode, I'm going to talk about electrical safety. As a licensed electrician, this is a topic on which I know very well. However, this podcast is not intended as advice or how-to. It's also not intended to spread fear or pressure anyone into anything. Also, I am not certified to teach a safety course. Most of my teaching at the local community college deals with trade-specific subjects, such as instrumentation and electronics, which do not require certification beyond my trade license and demonstrated understanding and ability of these subjects, though I am required to maintain all of my relevant safety certifications for my continued employment, either at the local college or on the job site. This episode is going to be an honest conversation from me about electrical safety, and nothing about this podcast has been endorsed by my union nor by any of my employers. My reasons for doing this episode are because it is likely that a listener of Hacker Public Radio is probably smart enough to do a lot of their own electrical work. There are not a lot of people in this community, and I want each and every one of you to be safe. And so I'm going to do my best to make this as interesting as possible while helping you to understand the real dangers of electricity. First of all, I want to start with why this is so important. Quite simply put, electricity can kill you and it can burn your house down. We live in a day and age where we take for granted that electricity is pretty safe. We can turn lights on and off plug in electrical equipment, and even reset a tripped breaker all without fearing electrocution or fire. However, it wasn't always that way. Take the word electrocution, for example. This was not a word used in our vocabulary until around 1897, and it literally means execution by electricity. This was not fear-mongering pseudoscience, Getting electricity into your home in the late 1800s was a craze, much like getting internet in our homes was a craze in the late 1990s. There were no regulations, so whether you would get AC or DC power and whatever voltage you would get could vary from city to city, to the point where an electric iron purchased in one part of the country may not have worked at all in another part of the country. These were early days, where houses getting burned down and people getting killed by electricity made the news. It wasn't that people were stupid or foolish. 
and they were no less intelligent than we are today. They just didn't fully understand the dangers, because electricity is a force that is not readily observable by our natural senses. At the time, many houses were being lit by gas lighting, which presented an even greater danger of fire and death from carbon monoxide poisoning, and these deaths also made the news. Many homes and buildings were converted from gas lights to electrical lights, and this is the reason why rigid conduit used for electrical work in industry today is nearly identical to gas pipes and fittings used in the installation of natural gas. In some cases, an electrical installation may have been a bare wire hanging from a ceiling to a light. In the early days, there was no such thing as overcurrent protection, no fuses, and forget about breakers, so a short circuit could really burn down someone's house. Today, the current Canadian Electrical Code is the 24th edition, which was last updated in the year 2018. It's a book that measures approximately 21 centimeters by 28 centimeters and contains 953 pages. In addition to this, each province can have their own amendments to this. Section 0 of this code book, entitled Object, Scope, and Definitions, makes it clear that the object of this code is to, quote, establish safety standards for the installation and maintenance of electrical equipment, unquote. However, they have made it very clear that, and I quote, this code is not intended as a design specification nor as an instruction manual for untrained persons, unquote. This means that, in addition to this code book, it is expected that a licensed electrician would have completed an apprenticeship which generally lasts around five years in addition to understanding this book with regards to electrical installations. And this really is the reason why we don't hear about death by electricity or homes being burned down by electricity uh, much these days anymore. Uh, there are redundancies in place, as well as oversizing of everything. For example, a standard 15-amp circuit breaker would be used on a circuit designed to carry no more than 12 amps for current. The size of the breaker cannot be greater than the wire it is protecting, which means we cannot use number 14 wire rated at 15 amps with a 20 amp circuit breaker. That's not to say that you can't physically do this. In fact, a common hack decades ago was to replace a blown fuse with a bigger fuse if that fuse kept blowing. The problem, of course, is that when a 15 amp fuse blows, it will blow before the current gets too high for the wire, or more specifically, the wire's insulation. When a wire is too small for the current it is carrying, it becomes very hot, like a burner on a stove. The insulation can then melt off because the current carrying capacity of a wire is actually determined by its insulation, not necessarily the wire itself. And so the wire will continue to conduct as much current as available until an overcurrent protection device like a fuse or breaker does its job. This is what will cause a house to burn down because houses are made out of wood and the wires in the houses are run through small holes in that wood. So if a breaker keeps tripping or a fuse keeps blowing, there is a serious underlying problem that needs to be found because as good as modern circuit breakers and fuses are, they are still manufactured products designed to a price point. There are certain breakers that we come across in the trade that have a reputation of not tripping when they're supposed to. And I'm pretty sure those companies aren't around anymore, but their circuit breakers certainly are. 
another issue with breakers is that unless they're switch rated, they're not supposed to be used as switches, and they can only take so many trips before they should be replaced. The fact that today's circuit breakers are designed so well means people will do things like use them as light switches or induce a short circuit in order to discover which circuit breaker the circuit is on. But I'm going to ask you, no, I'm going to beg you to please don't ever do any of these things. I mean, if you know that a circuit breaker is switch rated or designed to tolerate constant tripping, that's one thing. However, you can safely assume that the circuit breakers in your home were probably the least expensive the contractor could buy at the time. Of course, you will want to turn off a circuit breaker before working on that circuit, as non-switch rated circuit breakers obviously can take being turned on and off quite a few times because that's how they're designed. However, as standard trade practice, I always stand to one side of any panel that has a breaker I'm turning on and turn my head away while turning it on because in rare instances, Certain breakers have been known to explode when they fail. We call the explosion an arc flash, and I will put some links to videos in the show notes. Once again, I'd like to remind you that I'm not trying to scare you from resetting a breaker on your circuit breaker panel. If a breaker trips, and you know it's because you just plugged in a space heater or hair dryer, for example, you should understand that most space heaters and hair dryers will use up all the ampacity on the circuit they're plugged into. So let's do a little bit of math. A 1500-watt heater or hair dryer divided by 120 volts gives us 12.5 amps. Remember earlier when I said a 15-amp breaker should not be loaded up beyond 12 amps? That's because of the 80% rule. That 1500-watt heating appliance actually bends that rule a little bit by drawing an extra half amp. It's still well within what the wire is rated at, and within the tolerance of a modern circuit breaker, but that appliance can be the only thing on that circuit. When I want to reduce the risk of a potential circuit breaker explosion when I reset it, I make sure to turn off and disconnect all of the electrical loads on that circuit before resetting the breaker. This way, very little to no current will be flowing through the breaker contacts when it's reset. Now, at this point, I might have lost some of you by talking about watts and amps, So I'm going to talk a bit about Ohm's Law. Now, when many people think of electricity, they think of electricity as this thing that is measured by a number, and the most common number people are familiar with is the volt. We know, for example, that 120 volts is half of 240 volts, and that our cars run on a 12-volt electrical system. Voltage is important because electronic devices are designed to work within a specific voltage range. Too little or too much voltage can damage the components of an electrical device. Voltage is the electrical potential between two points. Think of it like electric pressure or tension. A static electric shock could have a voltage potential of over 20,000 volts, while the battery in a wristwatch might only have a potential of 1.5 volts. The other component of electricity is current, which is measured in amps. Think of this as the flow of electricity. Together, voltage and current gives us the watt, which is a unit of power that describes how much power we use when we multiply voltage by current. The relationship between voltage and current are intertwined. If we increase the voltage, we can decrease the current and maintain the same amount of power. 
Therefore, we know that a 60 watt light bulb at 120 volts will use half an amp. Using this, in addition to the 80% rule, we understand that we could put up to 24 of these 60 watt light bulbs on a single 15 amp circuit to use the same 12.5 amps that a heating appliance would. This should give you some perspective on just how much power is being drawn by a space heater or a hair dryer. So now I think I'd like to talk about current and its effects on the human body. You've probably heard the old phrase, it's not the voltage that kills, but the current. So just how much current do you think it would take to kill you? Well, the answer is less than half an amp, with the general consensus among uh, experts being between 0.1 and 0.2 amps. Now, I know that some might be thinking there's no way that could be true, as even I personally have received electrical shocks that have been much greater than this. Now, the real problem lies in which path the electricity takes through your body and how much resistance your body provides to the flow of electricity. For example, if you were to stick your finger in a light socket and you got a shock, there's a pretty good chance that the side of your finger was touching the side of the light socket so the electricity would be flowing between your fingertip and the side of your finger that's touching the side of the socket. It would certainly hurt, but it's not likely the electricity would have found a path through your heart. However, if you were standing on a wet basement floor and did the same thing, there's a pretty good chance that some of the current may find its way through your arm and body to your feet as that may represent the easiest path to ground for some of the current in your finger and your heart is definitely much closer to that path. If you've ever seen a bolt of lightning photographed, you will see that most of the electricity will be concentrated along the easiest path to ground, but there are still branches off the main bolt that find alternate paths to ground. For this reason, anywhere in your home where there is water near an electrical outlet, either inside or out, we are required to install a ground fault circuit interrupter or GFCI receptacle. A GFCI is designed to trip at 5 milliamps, which is a lot lower than the 100 to 200 milliamps it takes to stop your heart. It works by measuring the current flow between the neutral and the hot connections in the receptacle. Under normal use, the current that flows into the electrical device is equal to the current that flows out of the device when the current flow between the hot and neutral become unbalanced, it means the electricity has found another path to ground other than the neutral, and a 5 milliamp difference will cause the GFCI to trip. These have a test and reset button on them, and they are designed to be tested on a regular basis. I strongly encourage you to test your GFCIs monthly, and if you cannot do that, at least test them quarterly. You should feel a click when pressing the test button and there should be not be any power available at the receptacle until you press the reset button. If you cannot reset it, this means the receptacle has failed. GFCIs don't last forever, so if either the test or reset buttons don't work anymore, you need to stop using that receptacle until it's replaced. You can expect them to last between 7 to 10 years and I do not recommend cheaping out on this life-saving device. If you experience nuisance tripping on a new GFCI, there could be another electrical fault that is causing this that needs to be addressed. Whatever you do, never replace a GFCI with a standard receptacle. Prior to their widespread use, 
Nearly 800 people died annually from household electrocutions. Ever since ground fault circuit interrupters have become mandatory, that number has dropped to less than 200. I would like to see that number drop to zero, so please share this information with everyone you know. Now, by now you might be thinking, I must be brave to work with electricity every day. On the contrary, I'm probably one of the biggest cowards when it comes to electricity. In fact, it is one of my greatest fears. At this point of the show, I'm going to discuss with you how I protect myself when working with electricity. First of all, I dress appropriately. I always wear safety boots with the white rectangle tag that has an orange Greek Omega letter. This indicates that the sole of these boots will provide resistance to electrical shock. This way, if I were to accidentally touch a live wire, the path through my body and through my feet into the floor is not likely to be the easiest path to ground. Of course, I replace my work boots when the soles are worn in order to maintain this protection. This is a secondary level of protection in my safety plan and one I hope I never have to rely upon. I also wear only cotton clothing when working with electricity because in the event of an arc flash, clothes made from synthetic fibers can catch fire and burn more easily. As well, synthetics can melt and stick to my skin if exposed to an arc flash. Once again, the wearing of cotton fibers is intended as a secondary measure. I also wear gloves when I work, and while these will provide another barrier, their primary purpose is to protect me from cuts and abrasions. Any electrical shock protection they might provide is purely secondary. Of course, I also wear safety glasses and a hard hat, and my safety boots must also have a green triangle, but this is mostly to protect me from the other physical hazards of my trade. My number one line of defense against electrocution is to not work live. It's not just my policy, it's the policy of my trade union and many companies I work for. Any circuit I am working on is completely de-energized and made safe before I will work on it. And all troubleshooting is done with my meter after that. My most common method of de-energizing a circuit is to turn off a circuit breaker after I've removed all loads from the circuit. De-energizing the circuit is the first step I take in making a circuit safe. My second step is to verify the circuit is dead by using a non-contact AC voltage tester. This is a device that looks like a fat pen and can be purchased readily by anyone at most hardware stores. I can stick the tip safely into a receptacle or light socket, and if there's voltage present, it will beep and flash. When using a non-contact voltage tester, I always do a live dead live test. This is performed by first testing the voltage detector on a known live circuit, then testing it on the circuit I'm going to work on, and then testing it on a live circuit again. Even if I'm just going to change a light fixture in my home, I will do the live dead live test with my non-contact voltage tester to make sure there are no live wires in the box. This is important because even if I'm sure I found the right breaker, I might not know if there's another circuit in the box I'm working on that's fed from a different breaker, or if a circuit becomes backfed when de-energized due to a wiring fault. I'm not taking any chances, and it only takes a few seconds to do a live dead live test with a non-contact AC voltage tester. The third step I do is to perform a tag and lockout on the circuit. 
This is done by placing a tag and lockout on the breaker I've switched off. First, I select the appropriate circuit breaker lockout device for the size and type of breaker I'm locking out. Once I've done that, I attach my padlock to which there is only one key that can open it and no spares, along with a tag that includes my name and phone number. By law, nobody can remove this tag except for me. And if you come across a circuit breaker with, that's been tagged and locked out, don't ever remove it because that could land you in jail. Now, there are certain times in my trade where I am required to work live. Often this can happen when I have to perform extra testing on a circuit as a step in identifying a cause of an electrical problem or for checking for uh, performance issues. In this case, I take extra precautions by wearing an arc flash suit. This suit includes coveralls that are specially treated with flame retardant, a full face shield and a hard hat, and leather gloves that are covered by rubber gloves. These gloves need to be tested by my company on a regular basis to verify their ability to provide their rate of protection. This is about as close as I will get to the danger of electrocution in my trade, and so I will take every precaution necessary to eliminate the risk of electrocution. A person who understands the risks associated with electricity might decide they can safely do their own electrical work on their home. Before doing this, I recommend checking any homeowner's insurance policy you might have, along with the laws and regulations by the authority having jurisdiction. One of the reasons why hiring a licensed electrician can be so expensive is because of the liability insurance their company needs to pay. If an electrician does electrical work on your home and then your house burns down, you will want to make a claim with your insurance company. There will be an investigation into why your house burned down, and electrical fault causes are easy for a trained fire marshal to identify. If it was caused by the builder, your insurance company will sue them. If it was caused by a licensed electrician, your insurance company will go after that company, which is why they will have liability insurance. If you did it yourself, or the work was performed by someone who wasn't licensed, you could find your claim denied, which means you could be stuck paying a mortgage on a house that no longer exists. In my part of the world, a homeowner is allowed to do their own electrical work on their home, even if they're not licensed, but they are required to get a building permit and have the work inspected so that the insurance company can go after the inspector if you ever need to make a claim. Sometimes, a homeowner just wants to replace a light fixture, switch, or receptacle. In my part of the world, like-for-like -like replacements are permissible to be done by the homeowner without requiring a permit or inspection. However, there is one caveat that many people need to be aware of. In my part of the world, you will want to make sure that whatever fixture or device you're replacing has been certified by a recognized certification authority. This means that, for me, anything that has a CSA or Underwriters Lab certification stamped on it is recognized. What this means is that a testing organization has been hired to independently test the device, so if a defect in your new light fixture is the cause of the fire that burned your house down, your insurance company will go after the certification authority. Naturally, this means that such products will cost more than those that haven't been certified, but electricity is not something that someone should cheap out on. Even my extension cords, power supplies, and coffee maker must have the CSA or UL logo on it before I plug it into a receptacle in my home. Now, the AC adapter that came with my Pinebook Pro 
has no recognizable certifications associated with it, and so I will definitely not leave that plugged in unsupervised. I also keep dry chemical fire extinguishers certified by Underwriters Lab throughout my house in the event that an electrical device catches fire. One of the biggest problems in this modern day is with smart light switches. This is a problem because of how light switches can be wired. According to code, the neutral wire in the cable run to a switch can be used for a switch loop if it is the return conductor. This means that, especially in older homes, the white wire in the light switch box may not be a neutral wire. This is a problem with smart switches because unlike a simple light switch, these are electrical devices themselves and therefore need that neutral wire in order to work. Here in North America, we float our neutral to ground. What this means is that some smart home hackers have decided to use the ground wire as the neutral when one isn't available. This will work perfectly fine, but what this has done is it has removed a layer of safety from your home because the ground wire, which is technically called a bond jumper, is meant to carry electricity in the case of an electrical fault safely to ground. By doing this, you will have turned your ground conductor into a current carrying conductor. And this is throughout your home since all bond jumpers are connected to a single point of ground, which is often a water supply pipe. It may work without any problems, but if something goes wrong with that smart switch, if it were to catch fire and burn your house down, the fire marshal will note that it was not installed properly, and because of this, neither the manufacturer nor the certification authority could be held liable, even if the device can be proven to be faulty. Also, ground wires are usually smaller than current carrying conductors because it's expected that they will carry current for a very short period of time before a breaker trips. And now, a potential electrical fault shorting to ground anywhere in your home could now backfeed your smart switch, which could cause it to blow up and burn. For this reason, all new builds are requiring electricians to bring a neutral wire to all switch boxes so that a homeowner can install smart switches. Another common problem I find is when homeowners replace a light fixture with a ceiling fan. The problem exists because most boxes used for light fixtures are not rated to support a ceiling fan. A typical light fixture weighs very little and does not move, whereas a ceiling fan weighs considerably more and its movements can shake a normal box loose over time. When installing a ceiling fan, I always make sure the box is rated to support a ceiling fan. If I don't know, it's safe to assume it's not because, as I mentioned before, the contractors who build homes will not spend more than they have to. There are boxes that are rated to support a ceiling fan and there are ways to make a traditional octagon box strong enough to support a ceiling fan. Not doing this adds the danger of a heavy falling object over your head in addition to the potential of a short circuit. Well, that's all I can think of for this podcast. I can't fit three years of trade school, a five-year apprenticeship, and a 953-page code book into a single podcast, but I think I touched on the important topics to help a listener of Hacker Public Radio to understand the reasons why everyone needs to be careful around electricity, and so I don't want to make people afraid, just to give you the knowledge that the hazards are always present, and it's up to all of us to keep it safe. I would like to live in a world where nobody is killed by electricity because everybody understands the risks associated with it and 
This is a case where following local codes and laws is a good idea, even if you question some of them. Oftentimes, we can come to question a code or regulation because we lack a full understanding of the reasons why. But sometimes a rule or regulation can be wrong, and it is our duty to call this out. For this reason, books like the Canadian Electrical Code are written in a transparent manner, and electricians like myself can make recommendations on future editions of the code, which is why it is updated every three years. My trade is open to anyone showing competence and a good work ethic. There are no secret handshakes here. Unfortunately, human nature is that we tend to forget how dangerous something can be as we make it safer. Someone born today would be unaware of the risks of electricity as they were a hundred years ago, but those risks have always been there. We just learn how to make it safe, and we're still learning how to, about ways to make it even safer. Education is key, and we all need to do our part. Okay, so now it's time to stop being so serious and have some fun. And for the musical portion of the Paul Quirk Show, I selected a very fun piece I think you will enjoy. This song is called In the Hall of the Mountain King, composed by Edvard Grieg and performed by the Muse Open Symphony, and available here for you to enjoy thanks to the Creative Commons license. Enjoy.
Well, that's it for this episode of the Paul Quirk Show. As usual, please remember to drive safe and have fun. You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Thank you.